Genesis 14. In the days of, of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shava Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Aner. These were the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsman, Lot, had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, and the women, and the people. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, that is Abraham, at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, he was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eschol, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, a lot of hard stuff in here, so let's pray and ask God for understanding together. Father, come now and work in our hearts through the scripture. Thank you that you have inspired this portion of your word along with the rest of it so that what we need to hear is exactly what you have communicated to us today. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and work through your word 
giving us the strength to believe that the gospel is true, that Jesus is for us and with us, and that you keep the promises that you make to your people. And we ask these things this morning together in the name of Jesus Christ, your Savior, our Savior, your Son. Amen. I recently uh, read a book by a man named Jack McCollum, who was a longtime sports writer uh, on the NBA beat for Sports Illustrated. And the book is about the 1992 U.S. men's Olympic basketball team. I was doing that to celebrate the Olympics. And uh, better known as the Dream Team, the first Olympic basketball team that had professional NBA basketball players on the team. And one of the great things in this book is the story about how the team was formed. And at that time, Michael Jordan, of course, was the main guy, the most important and the best player in the world and in the NBA. And the leaders and creators of the Dream Team wanted to make sure that Jordan was on the team. And so they asked Michael Jordan to be a part of this original Olympic team, the Dream Team. And Jordan said he will be a part of the team, but that he wanted some say in who his teammates were going to be. And as you read the story, it's really interesting to find out that basically that original dream team was formed based on who had good relationships or who had bad relationships with Michael Jordan. That's how important Jordan was. The way people related to Jordan, that is other NBA players, determined whether or not they were going to have the honor of playing on the first dream team. So just one of many examples is one of my favorites. The example of Isaiah Thomas, who was a point guard for the Detroit Pistons in the late 80s and early 90s. Now, in 1992, Jordan had just finally beaten the Pistons. His Bulls had just beaten the Pistons after losing to them for three or four straight seasons late in the playoffs. And it's a well-known fact that Isaiah Thomas is just a jerk. No one liked Isaiah Thomas, and uh, unless you're from Detroit. And um, NBA players were not big fans of Isaiah Thomas. And the prior season, Isaiah Thomas, after his team had lost the Bulls, had walked off the court with all of his teammates without shaking the Bulls' hands after the season had ended. And that made Michael Jordan mad. <laughs> he wasn't a fan of Isaiah at all. And so the first thing he said is that, I will only be on the Dream Team if Isaiah is not on the Dream Team. There was one other player that was on the fringe, a point guard named John Stockton, who played for the Utah Jazz. It came down to him or Isaiah for who would be the second point guard on the team. And Jordan liked John Stockton, but of course he hated Isaiah Thomas. And so Stockton got on the team. It's really interesting to see that everything was filtered through Jordan through his desire and through the relationships that people had with him. We see a similar principle, you might not believe me based on my basketball story, but I promise there's a similar principle in our story today. The way that people relate to Abraham determines how God views them. And it's just like the way people related to Jordan in the formation of the dream team determined whether or not they were going to be on the team. On Jordan's side, here Abraham, as the one who has received God's promises, has two kings relate to him in very different ways. And based on the way those kings relate to Abraham, we see, we see the promises of God to Abraham begin to come to fruition.
We've been studying this man's life for a couple of weeks now. We saw last time that Abraham returned from Egypt to the promised land with his nephew Lot. But there wasn't enough room in the promised land for both of these men who had both become very wealthy. And so Abraham, in a moment of humility and um, really great faith, decided to let his nephew Lot have the first choice of the land. He said, take whichever part of the land you want, and I'll take what's left over. We see that in Genesis chapter 13. And we read that Lot decided to live in the lush, fertile area of the promised land, right on the outskirts of this ancient city of Sodom, which is a name I'm sure most of you are familiar with. Now, this week we see that Lot gets himself into some trouble, largely based on where he has chosen to live. And so Abraham, again, is presented with a challenge. He's presented with an opportunity. Is he going to help Lot and get involved in the squabbles of these ancient kings? Or is he just going to kind of go about his business and let Lot take care of himself? And so a lot of the part of this story is foreign. It's old names and old places. And really the first 16 verses are just background for the main idea and the main part of the story is when Abraham is meeting with these two kings, the king of Salem and the king of Sodom. And as we see Abraham's interaction with these two men, we see again that God's promises to Abraham begin to be fulfilled. So what we're going to do this morning for a few minutes is look at this chapter in two parts. The first part, we're going to look at the background. Abraham battles the kings. And then in the second part, we'll look at the aftermath Abraham meets with these kings. But here's the main idea for you this morning. If Genesis 14 is teaching us one central point, you could say it like this. Those who rejoice in God's work are blessed, and those who reject God's work are cursed. Those who rejoice in God's work are blessed. Those who reject God's work are cursed. Okay, so let's see how the story teaches us that point as we look at these two sections. So first, verses 1 through 16 tell us about the background. They show us the world in the ancient Near East of Abraham's day. And there's a lot of strange places, a lot of strange people. And really the only reason that they're relevant at all, the only reason these people, quote, make the Bible, you know, why they make the cut is because of their interaction with Abraham and with Lot. There's one of these kings named Cheddar Laomer. For you pregnant couples, that's a great option, by the way, for naming your child. Cheddar Laomer. And uh, you might not be able to fit that on the birth certificate, but that's a great option for a name, in my opinion. Um, and and Chedorlaomer Leomer is sort of the leader of these nine kings that we read about in the first few verses there. And for 12 years, they've had somewhat of an alliance. But Chedorlaomer Leomer has been the dominant king in the alliance. And five of the kings, after 12 years, get tired of it. And we read in verses 4 and 5 or so that they rebel. Chedorlaomer Leomer whips them in verse 4 and They come under subjugation again for two more years. And then verse 5, in the 14th year, they rebel again. Four kings fight against five kings. So there's all sort of little intramural squabbling between these little kings in the ancient Near East. There's a rebellion and there's battles. So they all have this big fight in the Valley of Sidim in verse 6. And this is relevant to the Bible story because the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, the places where Lot is living, are on the losing side of this battle, as we read about there in the later verses, verses 8 through 12. And we read that because 
Sodom loses the battle. All of Sodom's people and possessions are taken into captivity with Shedder and Shedder marches them off as the spoils of war, including, we see there, Lot, the son of Abram's brother or Abraham's nephew. So one of the people escapes, we read there in verse 13, and goes and tells Abraham what has happened. He says, Abraham, there's been a big fight, as I'm sure you know. What you might not know is that Lot, your nephew, who's, this isn't his first mistake. You know, this isn't the first time Lot's found himself in trouble. Lot got captured. Lot's family got captured. Lot's stuff got captured. And Chedorlaomer has taken him east back to his homeland. Abraham hears about that and decides rather than sitting on his hands, he's going to do something about it. And so we read that he musters a pretty significant fighting force in that day, 318 men, and he pursues Chedorlaomer and the other kings and fights them, attacks them, ambushes them, you might say. Verse 15, in the middle of the night, he whips them, he kicks their tails and brings back Lot's and all of Lot's people, and all of Lot's possessions back to the promised land, back to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, so that's the background of the story. And rather than saying anything else about that, I want to just take a few minutes here and make three pieces of application from these verses for us today. What do these verses have to do with us? What do these verses teach us? Even though this might seem very foreign to you, there is much, even in a story like this, that we can Learn. Let me tell you three things. First, we see here, we see here first uh, the danger of flirting with evil and wickedness. The actions of Lot are what teach us this lesson. If you'll remember back in chapter 13, verse 12, we read that Lot had begun to dwell on the outskirts of Sodom. You know, he's in the suburbs of Sodom. But by chapter 14, he's living in Sodom. He has moved in. And we already know from chapter 13 that Sodom is a wicked place full of great sinners against the Lord, the author has told us. And by the way, Lot still doesn't learn his lesson. Later on in Abraham's story, we find him living downtown Sodom in chapter 19, but we'll get there in a few weeks. So we saw last time that Lot saw the beauty of Sodom, the external beauty, its lush and fertile farmland. And we made the point that he saw the perks and privileges, but not the problems of living in a place like that. He saw the advantages, but not the potential pitfalls. And one chapter later, this gets him into more and more trouble, eventually ending in disaster for him. Here's one thing we can take from that. Christ followers are not called to flirt with immorality. It's a very simple point. Rather, we are called to flee from it. But here's the way our mind works. You know, if if you're here and you're a Christian, I guarantee, because I'm the same way and I know you're the same way, we, we tend to believe that sin really isn't that big of a deal. We tend to believe we can handle it. I can play with this. I can get close to this. I can flirt with this. And it's not going to dominate me. It's not going to govern my life. I'm in control. I can handle this. I've got it taken care of. And we need to hear a lesson from God's word for us this morning that that is a way in which we, self, in which we are self-deceived. It's a way in which we fool ourselves. We don't believe that when we play with fire, we're eventually going to get burned, just like Lot didn't believe it. 
The scriptures rather call us to believe it and to see it, to see the peril and the danger of flirting with wickedness. I love the movie Rounders, starring uh, Matt, Matt Damon and Ed Norton. And uh, it's about two guys that are card players. They're hustlers in New York City. And uh, they're very gifted card players. And they're trying to sort of get out of the card game, at least Matt Damon is, and become a legitimate you know, citizen. Uh, Ed Norton is his best friend. He's also a very gifted card player, but he loves to cheat. He loves to cut cards. He loves to deal from the bottom of the deck. He loves to just go against the very line and cross the line of acceptable card playing behavior. And a major theme in the movie is how Matt Damon continues to get roped in by Ed Norton's character. His name's Worm, by the way, great character. Not a name I would recommend for you pregnant parents, Worm. Uh, He gets roped in by Worm's antics. And eventually it catches up to him. Worm gets busted cheating at cards and things do not go well for him. We see that lesson all over the place, not just in the scripture, but in our everyday lives. We know that when we play around with sin and evil, eventually it is going to catch up with us. Dave Ramsey is a famous you know, financial advisor, and he talks about, uh, by way of illustration, the importance of fleeing away from personal debt. And he uses the story of how, you know, you've seen in those Nature Channel shows, um, the lion crouching up and coming very silently and stealthily upon a flock of gazelles, you know, in the African, uh, in the African uh, area. And, and when the gazelles see the lion, you know, Dave Ramsey tells the story, what do the gazelles do? Do they sort of piddle around and go and get one last drink before they mosey on to the next watering hole? No, they run. They run as soon as they see danger. Dave Ramsey's point is that we should run away from debt as soon as we see danger. And the scripture's point here is that we should run. We should flee from immorality as soon as we sense that it is around us. Lot doesn't do that and it gets him into trouble. A second piece of application is that this story teaches us how we can fight against bitterness. Bitterness in relationships. Think about it. If there was ever a time for Abraham to say to Lot, I told you so, Lot. I told you not to go near Sodom. Lot, you're never going to learn your lesson. You always mess up. You've literally gotten captured by evil here. If if Abraham was thinking that way, if Abraham was living in bitterness towards Lot, right, Abraham's thinking, I can't believe he took the best possible pastures, right? I gave him the option, and he takes the best part. I'm trying to be nice to the guy, and he does me like that. One day, he's going to get what's coming to him, and I'm not going to be there to bail him out this time. If Abraham is thinking like that, then he is going to act very differently towards Lot than he does in this story. There's no way he's going to respond in the way we see him responding. He's just going to let Lot go and suffer the consequences of his own foolishness. But because Abraham is not living in bitterness towards his nephew, we see him at great risk to his own personal safety, courageously pursue his kinsman and his brother and rescue him. Abraham is not bitter towards Lot. He's not angry at Lot. He's not holding a grudge against Lot. If he were, he would never have done these things. And so the Spirit presses into our own lives and asks, do you have bitterness in relationships? 
Are you holding grudges? Do you find it difficult to forgive someone in your life that has wronged you? Look to the example of Abraham here. Because Abraham is trusting in God's promises to him, because Abraham is trusting in God's grace to him, he can let go of potential grudges. He can let go of bitterness. He can let go of hostility and anger towards Lot. John Piper writes this, The dark valley breath of bitterness cannot survive the high paths of faith in future grace. Grudges demand the valley vapors of self-pity and fear and emptiness. They cannot survive the contentment and confidence and fullness of joy that come from satisfaction in the grace of God. You see, what Piper is saying there is what this story is telling us, that when we are resting in God's promises to us, we are then able to let go of harvesting bitterness in our relationships. And furthermore, it's not like Abraham is perfect. I mean, just a few chapters prior, he made a pretty big mistake himself in Egypt. Remember what he did with his wife? He said, she's not my wife, she's my sister. You can take her, Pharaoh. And so we also can remember here that if we are really believing the gospel... If we're believing the story of what Christianity says about us, that we are actually worse than we think we are. We are desperate sinners in need of forgiveness. We are rebels, and that shows itself in our life every day. We are broken, and yet God, through the gospel, has loved us with great mercy in Jesus. If we can believe that and rest in that, then we can less and less and less hold these grudges and bitterness towards those who we might think we have a right to act that way towards. And then one final piece of application in this first point. It's very clear that God takes care of Abraham here, right? And so we can also see that God takes care of us. God takes care of us, listen, when the odds are stacked against us because he has made promises to us. Chedorlaomer has been the ruler of this realm for 15 years at this point. He's just won battle after battle after battle. But Abraham, at great risk to himself, goes out with only 300 men and beats Chedorlaomer. He defeats him in warfare. And we see there, again, that God is going to take care of Abraham. He is going to be with Abraham. When things that come, things come in Abraham's life that he does not anticipate or expect, God is not going to abandon him and let him rot and die. And the same is true for you this morning. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, this text reminds you not to fear. Not to fear the circumstances that you're facing. Not to fear the future that you can't be certain of. Not to fear the relationships that are causing you trouble. Not to fear your uncertain work situation, your uncertain marriage situation, the issues you're facing with your children, the issues that you're facing with your parents. Don't fear those things because God is always with you. Take heart. Jesus has overcome all the wickedness and pain of the world. God keeps the promises he makes. So when you face situations that confuse, when you face situations that overwhelm, God does not abandon you. Can you rest in that? Can you believe those good gospel promises? God is for you, and if he is for you, nothing can be against you. Those are the few of the lessons that we learn here in those first 16 verses when we read about Abraham's battle with the kings. 
Secondly, let me show you the second part of the story. Here we see in verse 17 and going through the end of the chapter, the aftermath. That is Abraham's meeting with two of these kings. On his return to Sodom to bring back the things that Chedorlaomer had taken as the spoils of war, we see in verse 17 that Abraham is met in the valley by two men. The king of Sodom on the one hand and this man named Melchizedek, the king of Salem on the other hand. And this interaction in many ways is the heart of the story. And I think the Holy Spirit in particular wants us to see how the contrast in the way these kings react to Abraham points us to the ways we react to God and to what God is doing in our lives. So let's just look at what happens. Notice that the king of Salem, this guy named Melchizedek, which, by the way, comes up later in the Bible. If you know your Bibles, you might know that. He appears in Psalm 110 and in Hebrews 7. Jesus is actually a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And there's a lot going on here that we don't have time to really get into details with. But go read Hebrews 7 if you have time this afternoon, and you'll see really interesting things about Melchizedek. But notice when he comes to Abraham, he says, the first thing he does, verse 19, is bless him. This is a, a king of an ancient Near Eastern city that does not know the true God, but he says, blessed be Abraham. By the way, when he says, by God most high, that's probably not a reference to the true God. That's the word in Hebrew, El, which just is a word for God in general. So it's sort of like if uh, someone who's not a Christian today references God, but he doesn't mean the real God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what Melchizedek probably is doing here. So despite the fact that he's not a covenant member, that he doesn't know the real God, at least not at this point, he can see that God is at work in Abraham's life. And so he says, blessed be this man, and blessed be his God. And then we also read that he brought out, look, he brought out bread and wine. Now, typically, the meal in that day would have been bread and water. And so the fact that Melchizedek brings out bread and wine means that this is intended to be sort of a royal banquet, This is a feast of celebration that Abraham has emerged from this battle victorious. And then you notice that Abraham, in verse 20, gives a tenth of everything to Melchizedek. That is, he responds to Melchizedek's generosity by being generous with him. That was a regular custom in ancient warfare. Kings would distribute the spoils of war as a tithe or as a tenth. And so we can say that Abraham responds to Melchizedek's blessing him by blessing Melchizedek in return. There's a, there's a mutual blessing taking place here. So Melchizedek acts towards Abraham with a spirit of generosity, with a spirit of gratitude, with a spirit of blessing, right? Now let's look at what the king of Sodom does. Whereas Melchizedek, we read, said, blessed be Abraham. Look at verse 21. What are the first words the king of Sodom said to Abraham? Give me. You see that? Give me the people, but you can take the goods for yourself. So he doesn't praise Abraham. He doesn't honor Abraham, even though Abraham's won the battle for him, right? The king of Sodom just got whooped. And Abraham has rescued all of his people and all of his stuff and brought it back to him. But instead of showing gratitude, instead of showing thankfulness like Melchizedek, he simply says, give me what is mine. And then look at what else happens. Rather than bringing out bread and wine in verse 17, we just read that the king of Sodom went out. He went out to meet him. That is, he goes to make demands of Abraham. He goes to negotiate with Abraham. 
He's acting in a way here that is very audacious, you see. He's a defeated king, not the victor. He doesn't have the right to stipulate who gets what in the spoils of war, and yet he comes to Abraham with hubris, with arrogance, with demands. And then thirdly, we see that Abraham had given a tenth of everything to Melchizedek, but when the king of Sodom asks Abraham to keep it all, Abraham says, no, 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 I'm giving you everything. And the reason we read is there in verse 24. He doesn't, or 23, he doesn't want this king to be able to say, I made Abram rich. So because Melchizedek was generous, Abraham is free to be generous to him in return. But Abraham can read between the lines with the king of Sodom and think to himself, if I take things from him, he's going to think he has the right to rule over me. The contrast can't be more vivid. You see, Melchizedek relates to Abraham with grace, with generosity, with a spirit of blessedness and knowing that God is with him. The king of Sodom, however, relates to Abraham with pride, with demands, with arrogance. What's the point? (laughs) Why is this important? Here's why. Okay. What we are seeing here is the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise God made to Abraham. Back in Genesis 12, 3. God had promised Abraham that the nations would be blessed through him. And that's already beginning to take place here. And also God had told Abraham that those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. And in only a few chapters, we see that exact thing taking place. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, blesses Abraham and is blessed. But the king of Sodom dishonors Abraham. And as we'll see in a few weeks, the king as well as his whole city is cursed. Here's the big point. The way people respond to God's chosen vessel of blessing, Abraham, determines the way that God responds to them. That's what the promise God made to Abraham means. So the main idea, again, is seen in Abraham's interaction with these two kings. The way people respond to Abraham determines the way God treats them. And, And here's the important thing. In this sense, Abraham, in this story, is a forerunner and a type of Jesus Christ himself. Abraham points us to Jesus here. Think about it. Abraham is the initial bearer of covenant blessing to the nations. But Abraham's greatest descendant, Jesus, is the final bearer of covenant blessing to the nations. Just as God judged people based on their response to Abraham in this story, so in our day, listen, the way in which God views you is based on how you respond to Jesus. Really, we're in the same position today as these two kings were then. As they met Abraham, after he had won a war for them, so now each one of us encounters Jesus after he has won a war for us. Abraham had defeated their enemies and brought plunder back. The question was, would these kings respond with gratitude or by being brusque and arrogant. And the question really is the same for us today. Jesus has defeated your enemies, sin and death and hell. 
He's defeated them at the cross and in his resurrection. And he has offered you all the spoils of his victory, a place in God's family, the promise of forgiveness, the joy of fellowship with others, hope in life, peace with God. The question is simply this. Will you receive Jesus with gratitude and thankfulness like Melchizedek did to Abraham? Or will you arrogantly make demands of him? Will you try to negotiate with him? Will you try to keep as much as you can for yourself? Will you recognize Jesus as the conquering king who has rescued you? Or will you refuse to bend your knee in loyalty and service? Will you act like the king of Salem or the king of Sodom? The way that God looks at you depends upon your response to Jesus. Jesus has offered himself to you freely in the gospel. He's won all the victory that's needed. Mop-up duty is all that we're doing. Jesus has already won. Jesus has defeated all of our greatest enemies. Jesus offers us forgiveness. He offers us a place in his kingdom forever. He, He offers us adoption. He offers us full pardon. He offers us all the promises of the gospel. Can you see what he has offered? Can you recognize him as king? That is the question. If you can see his grace and power, if you can see his victory for you, then respond this morning by giving him thanks. Respond by trusting him. Respond by submitting to Jesus' good rule over your lives. God offers you peace. God offers you hope. Can you respond by confessing that you need just that and trust that he's going to take care of you?